Welcome to Video Store. My name is Sam Mulberry. Today we are talking about the 1948 Vittorio De Sica masterpiece, Bicycle Thieves. Let's step into Barrett Fisher's Video Store. Barrett, how you doing? I'm doing great, Sam. All right, Barrett, I've already betrayed my my sense of this movie. This is... um, this is both a great movie, and the more I think about it, also like a perfect movie. Uh, and and we'll and we'll talk about I'll talk about why I think that is. But in just in terms of, as I was going through writing kind of notes and questions to talk about this morning, I just kept I would write something down, and then I would say that is done perfectly. That is done perfect. Like I just and 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 great and perfect are not always the same things because I think sometimes the best things have these imperfections in them. Mm-hmm. But this. There's so many things that are just the execution is so amazing that uh, I adored this movie. I, I I've been slowly building my list of you know kind of ranking the movies we've watched, and as I finished writing notes today, I realized I probably need to bump this movie up higher, uh, higher up on the list. So I'm going to tell you just right off the bat, I love this. What is your history with this film? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, again, it, it's another one of those films I kind of always knew it existed, and I first knew it as I mentioned last week as the Bicycle Thief. Um, probably my initial um, impression of the film had to do with seeing film posters in New Haven, Connecticut, where there was the Yale Film Society, and that's where I that's where I first kind of became interested in, in foreign films just just by seeing these posters. Um, I don't know when I first saw the film, probably when I was an undergraduate, probably it wasn't a great print. Um, and then I would have gone back to it when I was uh, when I was teaching my phone class. I never actually used it in class, but I know that I watched it in the Criterion edition, which came out in 99. So sometime after that, uh, I watched it when I was doing a little bit of research on neorealism. So I'd watch Rome Open City, I watched Bicycle Thieves, I watched Umberto D. Um, so somewhere in there, maybe, maybe 20, 15, 20 years ago. Do you remember the first time you saw it? Like what your response, what your reaction was to it? I don't remember it very well. I mean, I, I remember, um, appreciating it. I'm not sure I fell in love with it. I remember appreciating it. And as I said, I did see it in the context of other Italian neorealism films. I, I thought it was the strongest of the, of those films. I like Rome open city, but uh, which is traditionally viewed as the first of Italian neorealist films, but I think this one is really strong for some of the reasons that I think you've already hinted at. Yeah, and I will say this movie was made better by the fact that you know I just watched uh, Pintir Panchali and realizing, like, I mean, like we said, this is uh, for uh, for for Ra. This was the a movie that made him want to be a filmmaker, and I can so see him seeing this and saying, I, I want to tell a story that feels as real as this, that, that, that speaks to the things that are important to me. I, like, I, I can see that. I can see this as a movie that makes somebody want to make movies. Um, so yeah. So I, I will say the, the context in which I watched it, the conversation I've watched it in definitely uh, kind of raise that level. Now I know we talked about this last week, but in case people are bouncing around listening to different episodes can you give us the the quick rundown of italian neorealism just so we can get that sort of up front here and then we can dive into the film yeah so first of all just in terms of the history of italian neorealism it's when the italian film industry starts to rebuild itself in the literal rubble of world war ii so and it's 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 considered a very short-lived movement in terms of the films that are actually identified as as truly Italian neorealist. And uh, most people would say there's really only kind of seven films in that category. 
all made between 1945 and 1952, though most of them made just between 45 and 48. So 1945 is Roberto Rossellini's Rome Open City, Bicycle Thieves is 1948. So uh, De Sica makes three films that are considered neorealist, Rossellini makes three, and Visconti makes one. And, and, and so it's, that's one of the really interesting things about Italian realism. It kind of, those are really the, the canonical ones. Um, so what they have in common in terms of style is um, you have location filming. So these, the, the, so the quote unquote real world. So there's a real fascination, especially with cityscapes because they're so complex and historically layered in places like Rome. Um, there's an effort to avoid obvious um, filmmaking contrivances. So you tend not to see crane shots, long tracking shots, uh, complex editing. You know, so in a sense, it's a, a, an, uh, an effort to present reality kind of the way we actually experience it. And we don't experience it with any of those kind of filmic uh, conventions. Uh, there's a, they try to use available light. Uh, they tell the stories of ordinary people. It gets back to what we talked about with First Cow. Uh, often people living in the margins, people living in conditions of oppression or lack, uh, basically economically straightened uh, circumstances. And then another element, which is true of Bicycle Thieves um, and isn't true of all neorealist films, but does tend to be, and that is the use of non-professional actors. Uh, so, uh, you know, the actors in this film were, are, are just, quote, ordinary people uh, that uh, De Sica uh, chose uh, because that helps to get more at um, a kind of authenticity. Uh, one of the um, commentaries on the film that I watched was called Life As It Is which is seen as one way of expressing kind of the, the uh, uh, tenet of neorealism, which is we want to show reality as it, as it really is. Now, one could argue that the convention of not having any conventions is, a, is in fact a convention. And there are things about Bicycle Thieves which are very skillfully done. Uh, so there's a little bit of a, you know, this whole notion of, of reality, it's not a documentary, right? It, it still is a fiction film. So, uh, but if you compare it to contrast it with Hollywood films. Um, and I think one of the little ironies in this film, one of the commentaries in this film is the fact that the father is putting up a poster of Rita Hayworth, right? That represents Hollywood glamor. Uh, and Italians had seen plenty of Hollywood films at the time. So this is a direct contrast with that kind of filmmaking. Yeah, and, and this, I assume, um, we talked about Sadigit Ra being inspired by this. I, I presume that there are although this is a short-lived movement that this inspires uh, either individuals or movements uh, at different times in the, the decades, the decades past. Can you think of a, uh, and I, I realize I'm putting you on the spot here. Can you think of like a, a more contemporary movie that maybe leans on or is inspired by something like Italian neorealism? Well, I, 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 in a sense, I mean, I already, I already mentioned first cow, I suppose in a way you could, you could say that that's, that's the case. Um, there was a, uh, I'm not gonna come up with the title of it now, but there was a um, 1999 Iranian film uh, that Ibram mentions in his conversation about bicycle thieves. And there's a scene where the father puts the child on the handle of a, of a, bicycle, handle of a bicycle. And he says, this is de very definitely inspired by bicycle thieves um, or, or, or by, uh, sorry, by, uh, by, yeah, by bicycle thieves. There, um, I also mentioned last week, there was a Chinese film called Beijing Bicycle. 
which is kind of a remake of Bicycle Thieves in the Chinese setting. There's also a very obscure uh, African-American film uh, filmmaker made a film in the mid 80s called The Messenger, which is also inspired by Italian neorealism. But I think any time and any time a film um, tries to give you that sense of, um, oh, I know, Chop Shop. Uh, uh, that's another one that I think, uh, I forget the na filmmaker's name, Chop Chop. He also, he has um, Man Cart. I forget the third, the third title, uh, third uh, uh, word in that title. But there's a, a filmmaker who I, I would say that's very much in the, in the um, spirit of neorealism. Uh, one of the great, the 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 great uh, sort of little moments in this movie, uh, you talked about, you know, that these are, they're sort of almost small stories, right? Like, like could be could be seen as insignificant stories. A, a number of the reviews I read sort of summarize the plot right away and say, this is how small this is. But then they get into like, but look at how it is about all of these things. There's this great moment in. Uh, probably about two thirds of the way through the film when Antonio goes to the police uh, to make his, uh, you know, to file the report about, about his bike being stolen. And there's a reporter there who comes up to the, the police officer after Antonio and is like, is, is this something important? And he just says, no, it's just a bicycle. Don't worry about it. And it's like, so they're even saying like the people around them are saying the story you're watching is insignificant, mm -hmm. even though the film is telling you this is maybe about the most important stuff. Yeah, you know, for for these people, this is the most important thing. So, uh, one of the things you mentioned already that uh, I thought was fascinating, and it's one of the first things that I would say is perfect about this movie. That um, this movie, there's a, a narrative around the title of this movie because you will see this movie referred to as Bicycle Thieves, which I think is what the literal translation of the title is, but it's also often referred to as the Bicycle Thief. Right. Um, I love the title Bicycle Thieves. It is that is one of the things that's perfect. And it's the kind of thing that I didn't think at all about the title as I was watching it. And as I got to the end, I thought I realized, Oh, this is called this, that, that word is plural. And this is about more than just the person who stole Antonio's bike. And I, and that I, I love when a title sort of floors you like that, when it, when it, you realize they were being very obvious in the title and you were, and I wasn't paying attention. And when I, when we get to, and we'll talk more about that scene at the end, cause that is another thing that I think is perfectly done. Uh, I just, it, it floored me. And actually it's earlier in the film that I realized, Oh, he's going to steal a bike too. Uh, there's, you know, there's, it's, it's, it's during that, that dinner, uh, the lunch scene, which is another scene we'll talk a lot about where as they're talking, it occurred to me, well, Antonio could just steal a bike. And then I realized, He's going to steal a bike like 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 that. That's where this is headed. So I thought the title of this movie was perfect. How did it get how did it get messed up? I, I think ironically, because it is ironic because he loved the film. I think it's Bosley Crowther. And I think I think a lot of people put it back to for those who don't know, Bosley Crowther was for Crowther was for many years the preeminent uh, film critic for The New York Times. Uh, and uh, Crowther's uh, uh, Crowther's opinion carried a lot of weight. Uh, and for some reason, when he reviewed the film, which he absolutely loved, he called it The Bicycle Thief. Um, now, I assume that it, it must have also been marketed that way as well when it came to the end. But so, so I don't know the, the uh, I don't know prior to that why somebody chose to translate that. I mean, it's obvious. I don't even know Italian, but you look at the you 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 look at the way the title is set up in Italian and just the ending of the of the of the of the word you know that it's got to be a plural so how or why 
somebody thought the bicycle thief was better than bicycle thieves. I don't know, but that's how it kind of got established. And in fact, in his, when he goes back and looks at the film again in the nineties, Ebert's review of it is called the bicycle thief slash bicycle thieves, just so people would know that that's the movie he's talking about. So, but I agree with you, Sam. I mean, bicycle thieves is a great title. Um, the bicycle thief just kind of, obscures the way the narrative works at a much more complex level yeah and okay so the next thing that i think is great about this movie is how it starts because this is a movie that is deeply tragic it's deeply depressing to think about what like like to think about you know we, we've talked about what happens the next day in movies sometimes and it's like this is one i don't even want to think about when they get home like i don't it's it's it is deeply sad deeply depressing but what's great about this movie is even though it's called the bicycle or it's called bicycle thieves and you know what's going to happen you know that this bicycle is going to get stolen the first 15 or 20 minutes of this movie is so optimistic it yeah. starts with a guy who has been out of work in a world that's out of work and he gets a job and there's the first issue of I don't have my bicycle and he and his wife, they figure out how to get the bike back. They, you know, pawn the sheets and when he goes and goes to the, the workplace and, you know, gets the uniform, it's positive. The scene where the other, where, where, where um, Antonio and all the other uh, poster hangers, I don't know what you'd call that job. Um, when they're all riding out into the city on their bikes with the ladders, it's just like, it feels great. It's just, this is, it's cause you feel like you see the city, you see all these people, the city seems like open and clean. There's nobody out on the streets, but the morning sun is shining. And it's funny that this movie feels so optimistic before mm. it crushes you and you know, it's going to crush you, but I get seduced by like, I just want to live in that moment when they're all riding out with their ladders. And it just, I, I thought that's just so perfectly done. Oh, I, 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 I'm right with you on that, Sam. And, and I remember, you know, early on when the kind of teases you when he leaves the bicycle to go upstairs and get his wife from the Holy one. And he tells the kid, you know, watch my bike. Um, you know, it's like, I mean, I just found myself literally tensing up. It's like, don't, don't leave the bike there. Now, of course, that's not when it gets stolen, I, interestingly enough. But it's like, yeah, you know, it's like, I know that I can't be seduced by this hope. Uh, and yet it's hard not to feel that it's, you know, a new day for him. So, But what's great about that scene, because I also think that was perfect. I think the tease is perfect because you it just keeps, you just keep seeing that bike sitting there. And he says offhandedly to the kid, watch my bike. And it's like, why can you trust him? And then when he comes back down and the bike is still there, it's like, oh, I get to prolong the hope. But also then when you see the actual person who steals the bike, the, it's, it's such a great scene because he's up on the ladder and you don't just see that person eyeing the bike. You just see lots of people walking by and looking at it. So it both feels like there's like vultures around him. <laughs> But at the same time, you think, well, maybe this is just my paranoia. Maybe they're not going to take the bike. So when it is stolen, even though you know it's going to happen, I just feel like I, I feel shocked by it, even though I know it's going to happen because I was, again, seduced into like, well, maybe this isn't when it happens. Maybe he gets at least one day, you know. So, again, I it's and that's where I think the storytelling is just so good because he's not hiding from you what this is. He's not hiding from you. This is going to be tragic probably, but, but, but that, that, that optimism is, is, is teased out for so long, which I love. Um, I, 
man, what to talk about next? Uh, can we talk about the pawn shop scene? Mm, yeah. Uh, because when when I f- first realized, oh, they're gonna go, they're gonna go get the bike back out of a pawn shop. I was picturing, uh, I guess, like the stereotypical American pawn shop. You know, this kind of small space that was just cluttered with all this stuff. Instead, it's this vast warehouse. It reminds me of the end of like Raiders of the Lost Ark when you just see this like like shelves upon shelves of stuff. I mean, when when they go and put the sheets up and he mm-hmm. climbs up this huge ladder. It's this great, without saying it, it's this great picture of telling you that Antonio's lot in life is not unique to him. Every bike, every bag of linens that you see there, and there are hundreds, maybe a thousand, thousands, every one of those represents a story like the one you're watching. You know, it's maybe a little different, but but it, but like I, I thought that was was really kind of amazing to sort of tell you we're gonna we're showing you this specific tale but know that we could have shown you all kinds of other tales and there is that same condition right it's a kind of microcosm right that he is you know we're interested in him both because of his individual story and yet we understand his individual story as a representative uh of of an entire uh population that is being that is oppressed that is in poverty uh, and that it doesn't appear that the officials either care or can do much uh, to help them. You know, from the guy who can't give out jobs, you know, there's all these people who need jobs and he can only give a job to one person or the police that don't care about the fact that his bike is stolen. So it's, yeah, it's that double vision that it kind of gives you. Yeah. And I, and maybe let's talk about, cause the other theme that I think is, is, is plays out really powerfully in this is futility that 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 even the 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 quest for the stolen bike i mean i love the guy that he meets with who just sort of has a plan of like we're going to go to this market this is where they are we're gonna, and you just realize uh, another tease that desica does is i would love for somebody to go through and frame by frame count how many bicycles you see in this movie cuz cuz you know they're looking for a bicycle and there is hundreds like there's all these wide shots and you just realize we're looking for a needle in a haystack and it's a needle that, that doesn't want to be found. It's so, so from the very beginning, you're like, we're going to go on a quest to have these people do this thing. That's utterly impossible. And he's keep telling, he tells you you're not going to find it. Uh, but, th- but there are all these moments of, of hope, you know, it like maybe, you know, there's somebody with a plan of how we're going to do this. And then, as you say, like the futility of, of, of sort of justice and the police. But what I like about that is it's not, it's not necessarily like corrupt justice. It's mm. it's because I sort of feel like with the uh, the police officer that he meets in the police station when he files the report, mm-hmm. I assume that's just kind of the case. Like, yeah, we can file a report, but do you think we're going to check every serial number on every bike? That it's like we can't do that. And the the at the end, the cop at the end who he gets when he actually encounters the 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 actual thief of of his bicycle. What I love is he's so sympathetic. He's empathetic and sympathetic to Antonio, but he's like, you know, there's all these people who are going to vouch for this guy. You don't, even if you're right. And he seems to be saying like, I believe you, Sure. but like, what, what do you want me to do? I, we can take this to the court, but they're going to have a hundred people saying this guy didn't do it. There's no body. There's no bike. Right. So there is just this, it's like life is 
futile and these systems are futile in that way. And I thought that was really, really powerfully portrayed. I mean, this is, this is, uh, this is a meet, you know, this is still post-World War II uh, Italy and the systems are overwhelmed. Everything is, things are still broken. But, you know, I, I want to say something about that scene in the, in the, uh, the, uh, the plaza when they're or Piazza, when they're looking for his bike amid, amid all these other bikes, um, a line from the rhyme of the ancient mariner actually occurred to me. Hmm. Right? Uh, Coleridge is the ancient mariner. That, that, that they're, they are um, dying of thirst on board the ship. And all around the ship, of course, is the vast ocean. Water, water everywhere, and nary a drop to drink. And I, and, I, and, I, and I thought about that line as he's in this marketplace with hundreds, if not thousands of bicycles, but not his. Yeah. It's, 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 to me, it was, uh, it was one of the most tantalizing scenes uh, in, in, in the film, because on the one hand, a bicycle is a bicycle is a bicycle. But on the other hand, it has to be this specific bike because that's his bike. So it, it, uh, to, to me, that was an amazingly, uh, that really captured the frustration. And of course, that gets repeated again at the end mm -hmm. when all the come out of the stadium. Uh, and at that point, he can't overcome, as we know, he can't overcome the, the temptation. Uh, can we maybe talk about Bruno a little bit? Because this oh, is, yeah. as much as the, the actor who plays Antonio is great, Bruno is maybe the, the most perfectly cast person I've ever seen in a movie. Uh, what, I, what I love about him is that he, it is both a perfect child performance um like like it it seems very real and natural and authentic and at the same time he has to play a little adult mm -hmm. there's so many indicators that are so fascinating so i was reading one thing and they were talking about you know bruno's about eight years old which means if this is 1948 means he was born around 1940 and for most of his his life his father the 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 reviewer was was speculating his father's probably fighting in the war his brother's mm -hmm. probably not there so bruno is from his very birth is probably the man of the house mm -hmm. uh even as a small child and it's so interesting because when the when his parents come home from the pawn shop i was taken aback by how it's like he was reprimanding his parents about like how could you get ripped off how, like like that's not enough and and it was so interesting and then the next day when they go out to uh when he goes out for for his job and bruno goes with him my first thought was oh that's cute like the the son's gonna gonna accompany his father but when they get there you realize oh bruno's the one in the family with a job <laughs> he works at this filling station so it's like it's like it's almost like he's taking his dad to work and he's saying like you know we're, we're gonna meet at the end of this long work day and so you all you realize like he has He's actually in a position to kind of reprimand his 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 father and uh, you know for for the situations and because he's sort of like I'm I'm doing my part. I thought that was and and they don't address it, but you see it happen. You know, as as Antonio rides off, you see Bruno go into the station and grab a funnel and like the the thing he sits on. Uh, and I thought that was really really pretty amazing. Yeah, he is like a little man. I mean, at the end when uh, his dad gives him the money, he just tells him, you, know, "You take you take the streetcar home." I mean, it's like uh, this is just normal, normal life. Now, I don't know whether he doesn't go to school or because uh, if I'm understanding the sequence, this is Saturday because the day that they start looking for the bicycle is Sunday. So I don't know whether it's a weekend job for Bruno or whether he just doesn't go to go to school. That's not clear. But you're right. He is. He is kind of a I mean, he, even in his appearance, he's he's kind, he is kind of a little man. Um, yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, he and his father are basically wearing the same thing. They have the same sandwiches in their pot. I mean, they they yeah, they just look like they they look like visions of each other. But what's but it's interesting that it's not like he's aspiring to be his father. He's aspiring for his father to be like him, <laughs> or it feels like that a little bit. And, and and that thing and you know it leads you to think about Antonio and like how. I mean, I'll use a gendered word. How emasculating must that feel to be like, I'm accompanying my son to his job while I'm going to my first day of my job. And like, that's, yeah, that, that, that's just a, such a, such an interesting, an interesting thing. Um, wow. All the places to go. Uh, I loved all the indications of kind of class difference also that you see kind of peppered throughout this. So, um, the football match, the lunch, you know, there's, there's all these sort of looking at, here's what we're watching somebody else do. We're watching all these people because early they, they, they sort of seed the football match early, early in the, mm-hmm. the day when they see people like getting ready for it. And then the, the, the film ends outside of, you know, the big stadium and all the people are doing that where they've spent their day trying to preserve their livelihood by fine in by futilely trying to find this bike. Um, and then the lunch scene is, is I think just another fascinating, uh, great, great scene. Um, do you have thoughts on the, the lunch scene? Cause that feels like a pivotal, important moment. Yeah. Well, actually, okay. Before, uh, before we get to the lunch scene, I want to say one, one quick thing about the football thing. And that is that when the supporters of the football team go by, uh, Antonio asked Bruno if they're a good team. He says, he says they're not. Yeah. <laughs> Yes, I, I, okay. I, I got which also speaks to a kind of futility of fandom, right? It's like exactly the football team's going to lose. We're not going to get the bike. Okay, so here, here's here's a funny perspective I have on the lunch scene. Uh, a couple of times in our lives, my wife and I have um, committed ourselves to spending a, a huge, what seems like a huge amount of money, mainly buying a couple of houses when we bought our houses. Um, and you know, it's a lot of money. You sign a mortgage for you know. Hundred, two hundred thousand dollars, and what we've almost always done is we've gone out and had a fancy meal at an expensive restaurant because there's something about having committed ourselves to that much money that what difference does it make if we spend um, more money than we would normally spend on a meal at a restaurant? And in my mind, that's part of Antonio's mindset when he goes into that restaurant. It's like, you know what, if I've lost everything, what, what difference does it make? Let's just spend some money on wine and, and wine and food. So I think there's a, kind of, um, there's a kind of despair that he is expressing by saying, hey, let's just have a good time. Even though, of course, he's really trying to avoid the pain and the disappointment that he's feeling. So that's one response. And the other response is that, you know, he looks at that family evidently to be able to afford a plate of spaghetti. The way they're eating spaghetti is a, a big expense, and it becomes uh, a statement on the social class distinctions you were alluding to earlier. Right? He says you have to make a million lira a month to be able to afford a meal a meal like that, and it becomes this kind of moral lesson for or a lesson in, in, in reality for Bruno. And of course Bruno puts down the sandwich, right? He doesn't want to keep eating now. If it if it caught you know and ha- haven't we sometimes done that to our kids? You know, do you know how expensive this food is? You know how much mm-hmm. it costs to go here? You can't I mean when when I, when I when I was a kid it always bugged my 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 sister because my dad would take us for ice cream but we had to get smalls. You know, my sister wanted a large. Uh so anyway um, so I think that it also becomes a, a lesson 
in those class distinctions just at the very basic level of what you are able to eat. Yeah, I, I and, and I, I love the the line that leads up to to them going is he says you live and suffer to hell with it. Do you want a pizza? <laughs> you know, and, and and honestly, I was watching this with with my wife and my daughter, and we were all so disappointed that they went to a place that didn't have pizza because <laughs> I partially I wanted to see it. I wanted to be like, oh, I wonder what pizza looks like. <laughs> uh, looks like for for them, and uh, and I will say like, yeah, the. Uh, just that sense of kind of giving up and, and part of that giving up is also, this is the scene, like I said before, where the possibility of the title hit me and I can't remember what he says, but something in that conversation made me realize maybe they've reached a point of desperation where, where it now plays into the the end part of the movie, which is when, when they're going to go, when he's going to attempt to steal a bike himself. But, but but isn't isn't it so typical of his experience, right? That all he wants is to get a pizza, and it's not a place that serves pizza, right? Um, but 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 he says as he as, when they go in the restaurant, he says another interesting line. He says, "We can do as we like." So it's like this 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 moment of of, of freedom. But then he say, he says then he says and, and another great line says, "There's a cure for everything um, except death." So yes. it's, it's 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 a very emotionally it's an emotional roller coaster that scene and of course you're afraid he's really going to get drunk right he gets all that wine and you think oh no he's he's just going to get drunk and that's going to ruin the whole rest of the experience but he actually ends up restraining himself. Well, it's also they go I feel like like before they go is when they're they kind of have this break point in their relationship because this isn't isn't this right after he hits. Uh, yeah, he hits yeah. Bruno, and yeah. I mean, and again, as a as a parent, I, I don't haven't hit my kids, but there is this feeling sometimes of like, oh, maybe I've been so emotionally intense about something that I have stepped over a line, and then it so it then it's just like this like overcorrection too. I mean, because it, it's interesting. Like, I don't, I guess I don't know what eight year olds in Italy in the late forties do, but when he pours him, when he gets the wine and pours the glass of wine for his son, I was like, I guess this is what's happening. <laughs> I will. Well, I will also oh, go ahead. You no, know, it's interesting because he never actually directly apologizes to Bruno, right? But when he thinks that Bruno is the kid in the in drowning in the water, drowning, it's like there's this um, unspoken reconciliation between the two. And then, as you said, there's the restaurant scene, and that's part of why he gives him the wine too. It's like you know, we're we're pals again. Yeah, yeah. I will say the mozzarella sandwiches looked really good. I that that was a good secondary choice. <laughs> Well, and I, I love the way Bruno tries to tantalize the other kid, right? The other kid's got the spaghetti, but I've got this great mozzarella strip. <laughs> uh, I also, another scene that I loved and, and thought was really interesting in hindsight was when uh, Antonio returns to the, I don't know, is she a fortune teller, a mystic, a holy woman? Yeah. Um, and he sort of forces his way in and, and, and you know, sits right down and that, she gives him advice, but I realize, oh, that advice can be taken in. It's sort of like the Oracle of Delphi, right? So she says, like, well, if you don't catch them right away, you're never going to find them. And then when he is at, at the end, when he's eyeing that bike, I feel like he's he's listening to that advice in the opposite way, saying, yes, if they don't catch me right away, they'll never find me. Uh, and, it, you know, and that's not I mean, it is both what she was saying and not what she was saying. Like she was sort of saying, you know, kind of give up on the futility like you're not going to find it. But then he could he flipped that advice in another way. And I thought that was, again, one of those things that's not 
uh, in a in a a less subtle movie, we would have like had a flashback to hearing her say that again. And instead, you're just like, oh, well, clearly that's part of what's going through his mind right now. Yeah, yeah. Maybe let's talk about the ending scene of this movie because it is yet another thing that is, uh, it's it's the agony of I, I don't know if it's it seems like it's about eight minutes of when they get to where outside the stadium and you see all of the bicycles there and then you see the one bike sitting there identical to the way his his bike was sitting uh when he left it with the kid and it's just flashing back and forth between him looking at bruno him looking at the bike and he doesn't say anything i think but you know everything that's going through his head he's replaying the whole day he's replaying all of the experiences uh, and, you know, it's great because you're at this point where DeSica has created a, a moment where you don't, I don't know who I'm rooting for. Cause like, I don't want his fall into becoming the thing that damaged him. Right. But at the same time, like, I know he's not going to find his bike. So I kind of want him to, I want him to have a bike. So I kind of want him to take it at the same time. Um, my, my daughter mentioned at this point that she thought he was going to get away with it because, and she thought, well, this is going to be about sort of the, the cycle of poverty, right? That, that this creates a situation where the poor are left to just steal from the poor again, you know, and that would have been, even if he gets away, that would have been so deeply tragic because like he would have, you know, temporarily saved his family financially, but at, at the cost of yet another person, you know, losing this thing and, you know, uh, and committing this crime. Well, you know, it's a very, um, one thing I didn't say is that Italian neorealism has some origins in Marxist theory as well, a Marxist approach to society. And to me, that's one of the things that's really going on in the scene is it's the notion that you have on the one hand, uh, you have moral and ethical um, uh, standards. You know, one of those is you don't steal. And, but what do you do? You know, it's like some of those classical, classical ethical dilemmas. What do you do when your family's livelihood depends on you being able to earn a living. What do you do with those ethical standards of we don't steal from each other? Uh, and it's the material conditions that often end up shaping our character in ways that we don't want it to. And so to me, that's what that scene encapsulates. I mean, I think Antonio is a good man. Antonio does not want to commit a crime. He's just been victimized by a crime, as you pointed out, Sam. And he certainly doesn't want to do this in front of his son. So he's under this enormous ethical pressure, but he's also under this enormous economic pressure. And I think that, I think in a way you, you, you end up um, absolving him in a, in a sense because you say there's no, there's no right way for him to behave, right? You want to say ideally the right way to behave is not to steal, but how's he going to provide for the family? He's been he's been the victim of crime himself. And of course, as you pointed out, so then the irony is the victim of crime ends up committing crime. And to, to be frank, the thing that I thought when he took that bike was I thought to myself, well, gosh, isn't there another person who needs that bike for his or her livelihood? And of course, that's the tragedy of crime among among those who are poorer. Is that they is that the economic conditions create a kind of cannibalism, and they end up turning on each other because that's the only way they can find any opportunity uh, because of the constraints of their economic uh, conditions. And I just think, I mean, there is absolutely so much going on in that scene with that with that dilemma, 
And, uh, and then of course, you know, he can't get away with it, but in a sense, it doesn't matter because he's already stepped over, he's already stepped over a line. But I also love the way that that leads to, if there is hope in this film, um, the fact that Bruno takes his hand as they walk away, um, because Bruno understands uh, what his father has done. And there's a sense of forgiveness or empathy on Bruno's part that I, I know why you did it, dad, and I understand. Uh, and, and, I'm, and I'm still with you, you know? So it's like the son doesn't turn away, doesn't reject it because of that. Well, and it's it's interesting because the fact that Bruno misses that trolley car is both good fortune and bad fortune for Antonio. I mean, his son ends up seeing what he's what he the choice he ends up making or having to make. But at the same time, if Bruno's not there, his father goes to you know goes to court, goes to jail, probably right. That it's it's Bruno's presence there. I think that helps turn the, uh, the, the guy who, de- who decides not to press charges. I think he's looking at Bruno, right? So, so it's sort of that, that combination of like, do you want Bruno there to see that or not? And in fact, like the fact that he was there is, is crucial to his limited salvation in that moment. Right. Which, which makes him, you know, he is another of the bicycle thieves, but evidently a quite different bicycle thief from the one who's taken his bike. Mm-hmm. So there is a more, there is kind of a moral distinction there. So in 1952 was the first uh, sight and sound poll, and this was number one on that. So after, four years after this movie came out, this was regarded at least in one uh, it, it, to, to one estimation as the the greatest film of all time. Are you are you surprised that that in 1952, in that short of a time, this had reached that sort of level? And it's I mean, it still has a pretty prominent place on that list. Uh, you know, 60, 70 years later. Yeah, I mean, it, 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 it's surprising in one sense, Sam, because, yeah, four years later, but it's not surprising in a, in a couple of other senses. One is because in 1952, there's a lot fewer movies to look back on than there is in 2021, right? So you've got fewer movies to choose from for great movies. And secondly, you know, Italian neorealism was kind of at the height of its, uh, of its influence at that point. So I think that probably helped the film as well. Um, but at the other hand, you know, uh, historical estimates uh, that are quite short-sighted like that often don't end up lasting. So as you, po- you pointed out, it actually dropped off the list, uh, and then it came back on after its, after its re-release. So it kind of takes a while for these things to settle in. Mm-hmm. Uh, a couple of other little things. I'll actually let you go first. Do you have anything else? Because I have a couple other just little little things, and I'm guessing we're probably overlapping on some of them. There's yeah, a great I, casting what-if in this movie. Well, I, I want to go back to do a better uh, job of answering your question earlier on about influences. And the, uh, the, the film that I was thinking about that Ebert referenced was it's called Children of Heaven. Uh, and it, it, it's, a, it's a film from Iran. And then the director's name I couldn't think of is uh, Raman Barini, who did... Um, Chop Shop. And I would also say, note, point out that Ebert mentions a different Kelly Weiger film, one I've mentioned before, and that is uh, Wendy and Lucy. Uh, but one of the things that Ebert says about its relation to the Iranian film Children of Heaven is talks about, as I mentioned, the father putting uh, his little boy on the crossbar of his bicycle. And here's what Ebert says that such films stand outside time. A man loves his family and wants to protect and support them. Society makes it difficult. Who cannot identify with that? Hmm. I think that's a beautiful, I think it's a beautiful, uh, beautifully condensed description of, of neorealism. I love that. 
Uh, did you come across the uh, the great casting David O. Selznick casting What If for this movie? No, I didn't see that. So, so um, DeSica was looking for funding for this, and one of the places he went was to David O. Selznick, movie oh. producer. And uh, O. Selznick was really excited about it, but he wanted Cary Grant to play the lead. <laughs> <laughs> Needless to say, DeSica did not uh, did not sign on onto that. <laughs> Could you imagine this movie as a Cary Grant vehicle? You know, I love Cary Grant, but that 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 just would have been a complete disaster. So yeah, no which, which which leads me to uh, one of the I think Ebert mentions this in his review, and it's a uh, a quote or idea from DeSica that uh, everyone can play one role perfectly, and that is himself. And that that, that seems to be how DeSica casts is to say, like, can I find the person who is the person, uh, you know, or who embodies the person in in a kind of way? Yeah. And the uh, the great uh, the contemporary of, of DeSica, French filmmaker uh, Brisson, also followed his lead in casting non professionals for his roles as well. Uh, the only other tidbit that I have that, and, uh, and this, this sort of moves, to, uh, touches on some of the, the neorealism stuff of kind of wanting, uh, an authenticity, wanting, you know, natural lighting, wanting natural cityscape city situations is that in the scene at the end, when the stadium empties out and that you get all the traffic that apparently DeSica had managed to get control of the traffic lights outside of the stadium. And so, so that's how he could control the flow of traffic is he actually had the, had control of the traffic lights so that he could dump all of those bikes out into the street when he wanted to, to film. So, so he had a little control of reality. That's as I was exactly, I was getting at earlier that yeah, neorealism is, is still a, an artistic uh, phenomenon. And, and I want to finish with one thing we haven't touched on. That is that the writer of the film, Cesar Zavattini, was one of the great architects of Italian neorealism. He made about 80 films, including, I think, about 20 or so with the Sica. Uh, and he wrote an interesting essay called Some Ideas on the Cinema. And I just want to kind of quote a couple of those uh, passages. He says, the cinema's overwhelming desire to see, to analyze its hunger for reality is an act of concrete homage towards other people, towards what is happening and existing in the world. And incidentally, he says, it is what distinguishes neorealism from the American cinema. In fact, the American position is the opposite, is the antithesis, antithesis of our own. While we, that is Italian neorealists, are interested in the reality around us and want to know it directly, reality in American film is unnaturally filtered, purified, and comes out at one or two removes. In America, lack of subjects for films causes a crisis. But with us, such a crisis is impossible. One cannot be short of themes while there is still plenty of reality. Any hour of the day, any place, any person is a subject for a narrative if the narrator is capable of observing and illuminating all these collective elements by exploring their interior value. Hmm. That's, that's one of the manifestos of neorealism. I, I love that. We're going to get to your recommendation for next week, but before we do that, you mentioned, you know, that there's uh, about seven actual uh, Italian neorealist films. If someone wanted to watch one more uh, from the ones you've either seen or heard of, is there one that you'd be that that you would recommend? Yeah, I would. I would watch Rome Open City. Um, I think that's probably the the other one I would start at least start with. Okay, fantastic. So, what do you have for us for next week? Well, you know, I'm conscious, Sam, that we are in the middle of Lent and we are kind of working our way towards Easter. And so I thought that we ought to do some films that are kind of um, in some ways 
Easter themed, that is dealing with death and resurrection in one way or another. So I'm discovering that uh, I seem to gravitate towards films with Robert Duvall. Um, we've already seen him in a couple of very different roles. So next week I wanna revisit Tender Mercies, um, which is a 1983 film uh, directed by Bruce Beresford. And uh, Beresford was part of the um, uh, Australian new cinema in the 70s. Uh, we, we watched one of the Hollywood films by Peter Weir, who was part of that movement. Bruce Beresford, who are part of that movement as well, made a fantastic film called Breaker Morant uh, in 1980. Uh, and then he came to Hollywood. And so 83, I think, was his first or his second Hollywood film. Um, so Tender Mercies, uh, which uh, got Duval, I think it was a nomination. I don't think it got him an Oscar win. But anyway, uh, I think that'll be a, a nice change of pace and get us in a little bit of an Easter mood. I, I love this. Uh, I watched this in college. I took, when I took a uh, film, the modern sensibility, this is one of the, uh, one of the films that uh, Don Postuma uh, had us watch. Um, and uh, so, and I, rem I, what's funny is I remember very little about it, but I remember really loving it and really loving the conversation around it. So um, I am really excited to watch this Barrett. I say this every week, but thanks so much for recommending uh, bicycle thieves specifically. Uh, I have to revisit my list and push this up. Um, and I, and we're getting really close to 50 films. When we get to 50 films, I'll put the list, I'll put my list up on the website, even though lists are silly and they'll, they change every day, but uh, it has been fun to like force myself to kind of think what were the experiences that I, that I've enjoyed the most as we've, as we've gone through this. So thank you for recommending this. This is a movie that, uh, is deeply, deeply important to me. This is something I will definitely go back to. Um, and we will be back next week to talk about tender mercies in the video store. <laughs> <laughs>